a most original and creative talent in our business. Would you welcome Mr. Orson Welles? Ladies and gentlemen, Orson Welles again, come to call for another visit. Good evening. This is Orson Welles. Buck Benny, the two-fisted, quick-triggered marksman who shoots from the hip and never misses. Well, hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. Welcome to another episode of Orson Welles' podcast. We have Catherine Foley-Seeley with us today, and Terry oh, Phillips is back. Yeah, it was it was Kathy last week, uh, just Kathy and I, but um, we were going to record this one then, and we just sort of ran out of time. Plus, we love this one so much that we were like, oh, we'd rather dig into this a little deeper and things. And so we thought we'd give it a week and, and Kathy was going to look some things up and so forth. And, and ter- having Terry here, he looks some things up. So we shall see. This is a really different one and uh, just a beautiful tribute to uh, three different uh, folks and their families. And it was just delightful hearing from the families. I thought that really impacted me because it seemed so honest. It didn't seem like they were uh, coached in anything. Uh, and they just were a very honest uh, piece. But uh, let's go with um, Kathy first to maybe give us just an overview of what this episode kind of entails and any new information she found. Then we'll go to Terry for a deep dive. So <laughs> go ahead, Kathy. <laughs> Well, indeed, for this is a, a December holiday episode, but December of 1945, what a time of, of fear. I just, this episode really puts us back into that very confusing and perilous time of killer cold weather, of Orson calls it the age of the atom, of, of just sheer fright, of relief that the war is over. But here, thinking about the sacrifice of, of brave people, fighting the war so that you know it's all um all jumbled up together and and orson is such a um he's just a, so filled with emotion and really takes us along for the ride on on um of the peril of the times the hope of the times the the memory of of what all these people have sacrificed for really really impressed me yeah I want to hear all about Terry's research. Yeah, so do I. Before I flip to Terry, I, I'll, I'll just say one quick thing that, that impacted me in a way I didn't expect it to. Uh, when they're talking to uh, an African-American uh, uh, that died, he died and they have his father on, his father speaks from his heart and just where he's coming from. And I was thinking, why? Why is this sticking out with me so much? Why does this seem to hit me in such a strange level? And I, as I thought about it this last week, I thought, I know why. We never, ever got to hear a Black person talk that wasn't scripted, that was, that was just straight. That I can remember in the 1940s and the 1950s. Can, I can't remember until the 1960s did we get where you were hearing black folks just sharing their hearts and sharing what they were about in the marches and that sort of thing where they would just put a microphone up to them and hear them speak. But before that, they either 
were not given any airtime, or if they were given airtime, it would be in, in a character like Rochester or something where they're doing a character and they've got a bit written and the whole thing. It wouldn't be, here's an unscripted moment with an interview with a black person. I mean, how many interviews do we even get with Rochester that's just an interview of an interview? Almost yeah. none. Yeah. We, none. All the other, we, we have Bill Harris interviews. We have, uh, we have Jack Benny interviews. We have Don Wilson, Dennis Day, every single person gets interviewed does rochester no and i don't know if that was him i don't know if that was uh just considered taboo that you didn't interview a black person I, uh, that's a that's a great topic for another day yeah. i have some i have some thoughts about that but just as you say mr dory miller's father is um uh you know he, he's um it's real just you say it hits you in the heart he's very real he's telling the truth you know he's he, he he's tempering his patriotism by the incredible pain of what's happened to his family. And Orson tries to get him and, to to so it, it, Orson doesn't say it quite this way, but certainly the way it comes across is certainly it's somewhat better, right? Certainly you've seen some improvement, right? Uh, and he's like, he almost did say that I word for word. Improvement, I mean, but there hasn't. I haven't seen it. it. Yeah, but Terry, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. And we'll give it to you, Terry. Well. You know, be before I start, and I should have asked you this before we started recording, um, are you going to present all that we listen to, including the false start, or are you just going to begin with um, with the program, with the commentary, the Orson Welles commentary? I will do whatever you want, Terry. I've, I, I, let me, let me just, I have let me it just both ways. Let me, let me tell you, let me tell the audience what, what Terry's getting at here. And if, if audience want to jump okay. ahead and get these episodes themselves, you can get some of them. You can get about the next month's worth. Somebody, I'm not sure, it looks like a packaged collection or something. Did we, We've always said there's only been eight of these shows available. But uh, somebody did put out the first 20. Yeah, yeah, it is 20. Exactly 20. That's why I think it's a package deal. So they put out the first 20 episodes. And what I've had to do is I'm always having to convert the episodes. I have them in a different format. And so I have to convert them each week. And it's a little bit of a hassle, but the sound quality is so great that it's, you know, great. Um, no problem doing it. But this makes it where if I grab those 20 and I was like, oh, well, now I can just pass those on to these folks. They can listen to those, even though they're not quite as high a quality. And then the one I present to you folks will be the converted one that I have a high quality. Now, the difference this week was the episode they listened to that Terry and, and Kathy listened to had a, a news piece that was at the beginning of it, and then it goes into the episode. The version I have that's in high quality is just the episode, no, no news piece on the front of it. So I think what I might do in this unique case, and I think now that Terry's brought it up, sure, I'll have to do it, but I think I'll combine those two. So you'll get the, you'll get the, the um, also there was a problem with it anyway. Because they, they do the news piece, and then at the end of the news piece, I believe it is, there's an echo where it just repeats like a skipping record for quite a while. And you're like, oh, is this, gonna, is this it? What's going to happen here? And then it switches over and goes into to Orson. So I'll present both. I'll eliminate the skipping part and just have it go right from the news piece into Orson. And but Orson will all of a sudden jump up in quality and sound, which is great. So that's Good. all. Well, I'm, glad, I'm glad you explained that. And so I will just very briefly say, for the sake of again context for listeners who don't know the name, and I didn't know the name, there was a journalist and uh, became a commentator named John B. Kennedy, 
who uh, does a little bit of, of um, commentary at the beginning. It's not actually news. It's news commentary on the news. Yes. And then, and then the Orson Welles commentary begins, which takes place uh, on the Treasure Island uh, U.S. Naval Base. Now, as many people might know, Treasure Island was built in 1938 for the World's Fair. It was taken over by the Navy during the war. And after the war, right after the war, they had a ceremony to rename the three theaters that were on the, uh, the naval base in honor of three uh, uh, service members who were killed. And I'll mention them because the names are, are mentioned rather quickly and they're not gonna be familiar to most of us. Um, the, uh, and this presentation, by the way, was done by the commander of the naval base, uh, who is um, uh, Robert W. Carey. He became um, a rear admiral before he retired. He was one of, by the way, the most decorated officers in U.S. naval history. And he presented these, um, these honors to these three service members. Theater number, th he did them in this order. Three, theater number three was renamed in honor of John Bassaloni, who was a, a Marine. Theater number two was renamed after Edward Butch O'Hara, who was a naval aviator. And theater number one was renamed in honor of Doris Miller, who was a Navy cook and who was African-American. They set this up, Orson Welles sets this up by saying that they're honoring three races, Italian-American, Irish-American, and African-American. Uh, I wanna focus on Dory Miller, who was not only the first black man to be awarded the Navy Cross, the second highest honor in the Navy or in the military, but he had a ship, a frigate named after him, the USS Miller, uh, and that was in service from 1973 to 1991. Um, after it was decommissioned, they decided to name another ship in his honor. And so there will be an aircraft carrier launched um, in the year 2028, which will also be named after him. He is one of the most heroic Americans who ever lived. His story will take uh, an hour to tell properly, but they did um, pay tribute to him uh, quite nicely in, in, this, um, in this commentary. The thing I wanna point out about the presentation overall is that it was very honest, uh, very heartfelt by all the participants, but it was also not truly spontaneous. It was a scripted presentation and it was done very carefully. And at the same time, they were trying to evoke the feelings of everybody. Uh, Orson Welles was meant to talk to um, a family member representing each of these three service members who uh, were killed. Uh, the first, John Bassaloni's father, was apparently unable to uh, participate because of some uh, illness. And so they, they, again, they did this, it was kind of reminiscent of War of the Worlds. It seemed like it was happening spontaneously, but I'm quite sure it was, it was a scripted reenactment, let's say, of, of what would have been a live uh, broadcast. So he was unable to, to speak on his uh, son's behalf or in his son's honor. But um, the, uh, the second, Butch O'Hare, um, they spoke, uh, Orson Welles spoke to his mother. And it was pretty clear in listening to it that she was reading a script, but they seemed to be her words. Um, it was a very common uh, phenomenon in the 1930s and 40s and even into the 50s for spontaneous interviews actually to be scripted. They were prepared. They weren't rehearsed so much, 
but people knew what they were going to be asked and they knew what they were going to say. And that was the case with, uh, with Butch O'Hare's mom. However, Dory Miller's father truly seemed to be um, speaking his mind. I mean, he was also prepared. And in fact, at the very beginning, there's a little um, uh, overlap where he's starting to answer the second question before Wells answers it. But when they get down to it, um, uh, uh, Dory Miller's father is, is pretty clear about his feelings regarding um, race, racism in the United States, that yes, his son is being honored and it's great. They'd really rather have him alive than a dead hero. And no, things are not getting better. And Orson Welles tried to evoke, yeah, but isn't it a little better? And he, you know, somewhat reluctantly said, well, yeah, maybe, hopefully we'll see. But it was, it was a very poignant moment in this, uh, in this entire uh, commentary. The last two points I want to make are that uh, at the very, very end, Orson Welles makes a, I won't repeat it, but he makes a, a, a reference to um, a former Nazi uh, scientists continuing to work to develop an atomic bomb. And it was really interesting and, and worrisome, even though the war was over, but the war was just over. And then the very last thing I want to say is that the Lear uh, radio commercial, Lear, uh, of course, the aircraft maker, but then made aircraft radios. Uh, they had a, they were the sponsor for for many, if not all of these commentaries. They were advertising a remote control for radio. You could sit on the other side of the room and control your Lear radio with this this little device. I presume it was not wireless. It was probably wired. It probably had a snake cable across the room, but um, progress. Right. And the, the, the whole Lear thing, uh, both that and the record where you can make a recording of on a wire and re-record on it and things. I mean, all of that. And like say the remote control, if you would have had me guess, I would have guessed, yeah, those things probably existed maybe in 1962. I would not have guessed that they had any of those things in 19. 19- 45s it's like that's absolutely i've just heard nothing like it until i saw that and it's it's just always interesting hearing these old shows and hearing something that seems incongruent with what your memory or what you what you believe is the way things progressed um most often i would say it's in slang that i think is a current slang or somewhat current like oh this must have started in the 1960s and someone uses that reference in 1942 and you're like oh i had no idea that they would be or a turn of phrase that it strikes you as is it still used today and that you just figured it came around in the 70s or something and it's like no that's from a long long time ago um certainly uh, my favorite is probably um, that that is completely different in meaning than it was at the time, but they use it sort of to mean somewhat in the ballpark of the same thing is when they uh, describe making love. And for them, making love in the 1930s or whatever was, I assume, pitching woo, sort of the dating someone, maybe kissing them or something was all it was. And now, of course, making love means a particular act that we think of as making love. But my favorite of that is got to be uh, Dennis Day's performance of Make Love to My Guitar, which is, uh, <laughs> it gives you a whole different visual going on of what's Dennis going on. Was a, Dennis was a weird guitar. kid. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
anyway, how many, how many I don't kids have, to have one of those uh, disclaimers at the beginning of this that it no, gets kind of yeah. kind of dirty at some point? But anyway, a little blue. But let's move on. So, Terry, did you have anything else about this episode? That was great. Your coverage of that was fantastic. Uh, uh, this is a reminder of how engaged Orson Welles was personally with uh, politics and uh, international affairs. As we had discussed before, this was a very worrisome time. Uh, the war had just ended. Uh, it was the atomic age, whatever that, however people interpreted that, and and we were still uh, we were still um, recovering. I mean, right. we buried um, many people. We uh, were caring for many wounded um, people, and it was a very very tough time. We have no idea. Those of us who were not. Right. alive and of, of uh, age during the Second World War, we today have no idea just how battered we were. And we won the war. Right. So imagine how much worse it was in Europe. Oh. And, and Orson Welles was very connected to this and presented it in, in, his, um, in his unique uh, and effective style. Well, I wonder about this as well. Um, Orson was, I, unfortunately, fortunately, I, I don't know if he wanted to be known as this, I, you know, it's kind of cool in a way. And yet it kind of messed up his career a little bit was kind of known as a, as a, like a, a loose cannon or kind of rogue. And we respect it over time. I mean, certainly that anyone who's got those characteristics, we usually go, Oh, we really like that person that they spoke their mind or they, they did what they thought was right, even though it was not the best for them career wise or whatever. But to me, this episode could be one of those that a person who is sponsoring it could be a person who would arranged with Orson to do this could be perhaps really upset with Orson at that last piece with, with Dory's dad, just in that it felt like it wasn't going the way that they kind of assumed it would go. And it was more honest than maybe they were hoping for. And again, I can see them, even though I don't think he was to blame, blaming Orson and going, there goes Orson again, uh, not having a handle on things, not having a tight grasp of things and making this come off like clockwork. Instead, he, he had this kind of loose cannon situation with this dad at the end. And that's why we shouldn't use him in the future. I don't know. I don't know. I, I think all of that builds, whether it's Citizen Kane, whether it's this, whether it's uh, War of the Worlds, I think all of that builds into who he is, but also where folks that want something that they have control over to maybe not go his way and maybe go, you know what, I was thinking about Orson, but I think we better go with the safe choice of this other person. And at the same time, you can hear him thinking out loud a little bit when he's talking to Dory Miller's dad, because... Yeah. He, Orson Welles was also a great proponent of, of uh, civil rights, of equal rights for yes. everyone, and particularly for, for knocking down uh, racism. Yes. And, yes. And, and yet, when he was talking to his father, he, he was trying to get him to move a little bit to the center. Yeah, but aren't we all in this together? Aren't, isn't this and, better for and, our... And yet, that could be a calculated theatrical move. Yes. Maybe of, of yeah. trying to convince the audience. Do you under, can you understand his point yeah. of view? Not yeah. to brush this under the rug or go, yay, I'm a gold star father. But yeah. to, you know, so there's so many levels to it that are just fascinating. I should go back and do research. I have access to the African, the um, nation's African American papers, 
and I, I, I promised this afternoon to go back and see if I can find any reaction um, uh, in there by commentators to this oh, yeah. program. Well, and I so. can see Orson doing it for a couple of reasons. I mean, honestly, I can see Orson doing it to go in his head flashing, okay, I've done Citizen Kane. They didn't, they, you know, I've had some backlash about that and have trouble getting some jobs. And I did War of the Worlds. I, I need to kind of steer this guy back to, I mean, the network, or also are they going to just cut us off at the network if this goes much further out, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to reel it back in for that reason too. So there were multiple reasons he could have been trying to, to bring this back. Also just for him, and I've done this before, you, you, you have a vision of what you want it to be. You want it to be in real life that uh, the, uh, the, the black people had this great impact on the war and did these wonderful things and Dory did these wonderful things and that helped, you know, that, 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 that were important things. And you say, I want it to have an impact on black society and make it better. And, and I want them to see that it's making it better. And so in your heart, you're going, please be wrong, mister. Please, please be, be that it is getting better and you just haven't noticed it or whatever. And I'm trying to dig so that you, you do say that because that's what I want to hear, right? That, that things are getting better uh, as, as a liberal like Orson was. That's what he wanted, I'm sure, to be reality. But on the other hand, part of him would be saying, but I want to hear the truth too. And so it made it a, a tightrope. And Orson walked the tightrope pretty well and let the guy get his point across. And, uh, and his point was, I, I hope it gets better in the future, but I don't see it. And, and I think that's a really honest uh, and truthful view of the way things were then. So anyway, I think we'll leave it there unless anybody has anything else they want to add. No, but what, thank you. Thank you for sharing this one. It was, um, so, uh, meaningful, uh, yeah. uh, it's a sort of historical thing and, uh, a piece of right. real history being lived out. So thank well, you. it's so funny because I got you two together just for Jack Benny, really. Cause, cause I wanted us to celebrate Jack Benny. And then I ran into these and just with your background and with your interests and mine, uh, I steered us over to this horse and piece. And to me, the Jacks are great. It's fun to do them. But this is the most interesting thing that we do. And to, to experience through Orson's eyes what was going on. And for us to be able to look at that 75 years later for many of these shows that have, haven't been heard in that amount of time. And for us to hear them and us to bring insight into them and uh, what we're seeing with them is just rewarding for me. I can tell it's rewarding for both of you. I just thank you so much for joining me on these because... Uh, it's a delightful show, and I think it's a little bit on the hilarious side that that usually we present a 15-minute show with about a 15-minute intro, sometimes a 25-minute intro or 30-minute. But you know what? I, I think if you're ever going to do that with any radio show, this is the one to do it with, and this is the one that needs some context for people to to hear it and really have it resonate with them. And so I thank you both for doing this. Thank you. And we'll see all you, Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, you're so welcome. You're so welcome. And we'll see. And our friend Orson never lets us down. He changes. This show stays exciting because you never know what he's going to bring us. It's, it's like getting a, a, it's like a Christmas present every week. You open it up and go, what's this episode going to be about? Oh, 
we're going off in left field over here. Oh, this one's in his in his hotel room. This is interesting. Oh, and now he's got a jazz band that's that's playing in the background, and and he's reading Louis Armstrong's letter. I mean, so many things. He was such a rich uh, individual as far as his his life experiences. That man, what what what? And, and as you say, for anyone who who doesn't appreciate the value of history, to be able to connect something that happened. Uh, generations ago to what we're talking about today and living through today yeah. it's uh, it's very instructive and and we should be paying more attention to yeah. our past yeah well and this is a part of history that we've said before is not covered very well usually they kind of gloss over the after the war up until like the 1950s and ike takes becomes president and so forth but uh, i think this is an important part of history that's great to present so thank you both so much and we'll see all you folks next week so from coast to coast, it's Harvell Watch Time. Each Sunday at this time, the Harvell Watch Company brings you the stimulating quarter hour of world news and comment by the noted John B. Kennedy, seasoned observer, veteran editor, and distinguished reporter. In these critical post-war days, Mr. Kennedy's pithy comments are followed by millions who make this radio broadcast a regular feature of their Sunday listening. It is the privilege of the Harvell Watch Company to present... John B. Kennedy and the News. Friends from coast to coast, General MacArthur today drew up a new list of Japanese war criminals in Tokyo, making it so comprehensive that he might save time by tossing in the entire Japanese who's who. General Yamashita's sentence to be hanged shocked former Premier Tojo and other top Jap samurai at Osaki prison. After the first impact of doom at which Yamashita shook like Jap jello, he turned stoic. And a stoic, you know, is someone who can lose his shirt to one guy while another guy's swiping his shorts. MacArthur's modulated method of educating the Japanese people is illustrated strikingly today by the Japanese press. This is Orson Welles, speaking from Treasure Island in San Francisco Bay. This broadcast will also come to you from St. Louis, Missouri, New York City, and from Waco in the state of Texas. We'll get to that in just a minute. Today's broadcast is very special. And Lear Incorporated wishes to devote all the time possible to bringing this program to you. So in no more than 30 seconds, let me remind you that Lear, L-E-A-R, has been making aircraft radio since 1930. And that now Lear's unusual experience in producing fine radios is being used in making radios you can buy for your home. Later, I'll give you a hint of one of the new developments you'll find in Lear radios. Remember the name Lear. L-E-A-R. Now Mr. Wells brings you his views and opinions on events as he sees them. The opinions expressed on these broadcasts do not necessarily represent the views of Lear Incorporated. Some millions of Americans came to a World's Fair here in Treasure Island not so long ago, and a million or so more have come here since on more serious affairs, for this, you know, is now a mighty naval station, a jumping-off place for those who've gone out to war in the Pacific and a reception center for the many who've come back. Tourists and transient sailors have had this much in common anyway. A breathless view of bridge and sky of ships come proudly to a proud city and of the place itself, the magic city named for St. Francis, who used to talk to the little birds about the love of God and to men about the brotherhood of man. When last I was here in San Francisco, it was spring. Spring and the Conference of the United Nations seemed to hold the promise of a world springtime, the awakening of decency between the governments, of justice among the peoples. Peace, I remembered, looked bright and green on the bud. But now it's winter again, and across the sea, 
war which started in a very distant-sounding place called Manchuria is still raging. It's winter, and in Washington on the desk of the Secretary of Agriculture is a proposal to slaughter a million hens, the intention being to cut egg production and keep prices up. Winter has just begun in Warsaw, where 10,000 human beings will starve to death in this Christmas month of December. Spring and peace seem quite a ways off today. Today being the day after the day after the fourth anniversary of Pearl Harbor in the fifth month of the first year of the age of the atom. Well, my business in Treasure Island in the Bay of the City of St. Francis on this day concerns theaters, theaters and heroes. There are three large, well-equipped theaters here at Treasure Island where men of the Navy see not only movies, but USO camp shows, Hollywood Victory Committee productions, and so on. I played here myself with our Mercury Magic show, not infrequently, and so have many of my friends. Until today, these playhouses have been known simply as Theater Number One, Theater Number Two, and Theater Number Three. Today, they're being renamed, being dedicated to the memory of three heroes, representatives of the land, sea, and air components of the Navy, representatives also of three American races and of three American creeds. I'm here at the invitation of Commodore R.W. Carey, commanding officer of this center, and we're now seated on the stage of one of the theaters, number three as it happens, in the audience of dignitaries, admirals, and so on, and a great many enlisted men. My role here is that of a storyteller and an interviewer, and I'll tell you the stories now become legendary of the three men now being honored here, and I'll interview their parents, who are seated at microphones at various points in the United States. The dedications proper will be made by Commodore Carey, and the next voice you hear will be his. Now hear this. To all hands, theater number three shall henceforth be known as the John Bassaloni Theater. John Bassaloni. Gunnery Sergeant John Bassaloni, United States Marine Corps, killed in action 19 February 1945, D-Day at Iwo Jima. John's father is an immigrant, a tailor by trade and a good one. The boy grew up in Raritan, New Jersey, one of 11 children. One October night, three years ago in Guadalcanal, the Jap launched a savage counterattack against Marine positions, and John Bassaloni was in charge of two sections of heavy machine guns. With one of his sections knocked out, John moved an extra gun into action, repaired another gun under fire, manned it personally, fought his way through hostile forces to bring up more ammunition, and held his line. As far as the history books are concerned, the facts are as simple as that. Three days and nights without food or rest, his own gun crews virtually annihilated, but with them, the larger part of the Japanese regiment the bodies in a great pile before John Bassaloni's guns. They gave him the Medal of Honor, a hero's triumphal tour of the United States, during which he had time to marry Lena Mayrigi, a woman Marine sergeant. Uh, excuse me, a note has just been handed me. It says that Mr. Salvatore Bassaloni was waiting in a radio station on the other side of the continent to talk to us about his son, has been taken ill, is too ill to broadcast. Ladies and gentlemen, I wish you could have heard Mr. Bassaloni talking about John. In New York a couple of days ago, I asked him why after John got his medal and everything, he turned down a commission for stateside duty. I asked John's father why Sergeant John Bassaloni left Sergeant Lena Bassaloni and went back into combat where he was killed. And John's father told me that it was for his boys, that is, for John's friends. He no like it they is killed. John's father told me. He say, poor my boys, poor my boys. And my wife tell him all the time, no, go back, no, go back. But he go. Commodore Carey. Now hear this. To all hands, theater number 
two shall henceforth be known as the Butch O'Hare Theater. Lieutenant Commander Edward Henry O'Hare, United States Navy. Missing in aerial combat 27 November 1943 off Tarawa. His father was a lawyer, promoter, and a sportsman, friend of Jim Farley and of other politicians. When the boy finished Western Military Academy, he was given an appointment to Annapolis. As for the action which marks his name in bold-faced letters on the long roll of American heroism, so that even those who have no wish to remember must pause and remember, the facts are these. During the Battle of the Coral Sea, a formation of nine heavy enemy bombers was spotted approaching to attack his ship, the carrier Lexington. At the moment, O'Hare was the only fighter pilot aloft and ready. Alone, unaided, he braved the combined machine gun and cannon fire of the entire enemy formation, knocking five of the Japanese bombers from the air, damaging a sixth and saving his carrier. For this exploit called in his citation, one of the most daring, if not the most daring, single action in the history of combat aviation, he was awarded the Medal of Honor. He, too, was given a triumphal tour of the States, and he had a little time to get slightly acquainted with his infant child, Kathleen, born by Rita, the girl he had married just three months before the war had begun. He returned to combat, distinguished himself further in the campaigns for the Gilbert and Marshall Islands, and after shooting down his ninth plane, disappeared into the night. In the studios of KXOK, St. Louis, Missouri, his mother, Mrs. Selma O'Hare, is waiting to talk to us. Are you there, Mrs. O'Hare? Yes, Mr. Wells. Tell me, Mrs. O'Hare, how do you feel when you heard Butch had shot down five planes in a single engagement? How'd you feel? Well, the way I first heard, it was seven. Seven out of nine. A newspaper man called and told me about it. He was very excited, and I was too, I guess. You know what I said? No, what? I said, why didn't he get the other two? You must have been very proud. I was, and I am. Mrs. O'Hare, did Butch know what he was fighting for? Did he ever put it into words? I don't know. He was just doing his duty. Did he, did he ever waver? Did he ever wonder? Well, after Edward said goodbye to his wife and baby, she was just four months old when he went back to combat. His letters for the first time were, well, unsure. I wrote back that he had more to fight for than ever and that he was doing right, and I still think so. He did what was right. Yes, yes, he did, Mrs. O'Hare. But Mr. Wells... Yes? Can't we do something to see that there's no more war? We can try, Mrs. O'Hare. Thank you. Commodore Carey, we're ready for the final dedication. Now, hear this to all hands. Theater number one shall henceforth be known as the Doris Miller Theater. Doris Miller, ship's cook, third-class Doris Miller... United States Navy. Lost at sea, 24 November 1943, in the sinking of the Liscombe Bay. Doris's father is a farmer. He and his wife rent a farm for Mrs. Walker's on a rental basis known among sharecroppers as the Haffers. When on the 7th of December 1941, a certain memorable attack occurred at Pearl Harbor, Doris was serving as a mess attendant, second class, aboard the battleship Arizona. A Naval Reserve lieutenant and Doris manned a pair of machine guns and fired upon the attacking planes which were strafing and bombing the ship unmercifully. Doris and the lieutenant are said to have shot down eight enemy planes. The exact figure has never been substantiated, 
But what has been substantiated, and this without question, is that Doris Miller, as a Negro messman, had never been trained in gunnery. I'm happy, I'm, I'm very happy to report that naval training procedures have since been altered. For distinguished devotion to duty, extraordinary courage and disregard for his personal safety, Doris was awarded the Navy Cross. Doris got home to Waco just once after that on a 30-day leave and was subsequently lost on the Liscombe Bay. In Waco at this moment, seated at a microphone at station WACO, is his father, Connery Miller. Can you hear me, Mr. Miller? Yes, I hear you. Will you tell me something about your boy, Mr. Miller? Doris was a mighty fine boy. He never was in any trouble with anyone in his life. We well, Doris, think a well, lot Doris, of Doris. I beg your pardon, Mr. Miller. Will you say that again? Doris was a mighty fine boy. He never was in any trouble. Never was in any trouble with anyone. We thought a lot of Doris. Well, tell me, when Doris came home on his 30-day leave, did he tell you much about the war? No. Doris didn't like to talk about the war. He says when he talked about the war, it'd make him feel, uh, make him feel, make him think about his buddies, what got killed with him. I see. Well, Mr. Miller, do you think things are any better for your people because of the war? Mr. Miller, I say, do you think things are any better for your people because of the war? No. Not even a little bit? No, sir. Well, when white boys and Negro boys fight and die together, don't you think that makes for less prejudice? I think a man should be a man regardless of his color. Well, I know that's what I'm saying, Mr. Miller. Don't you think the heroism of a boy like Doris makes for a change? It may be. I don't see no change yet. But you must expect things to get a little better. Don't you think there's any hope for the future? It may be. I hope so. Because don't you see, Mr. Miller, if your boy's death does make things better, it has more meaning. It, it, it may have been worth it. We had Doris all of his life. We raised him up to be a man grown. And if we had our brothers... We would rather have our boy. I guess you know that. Yes. Thank you, Mr. Miller. Ladies and gentlemen, America's heroes have come from all walks of life and all classes and creeds and colors. That, I take it, is democracy. That, I take it, is what America's heroes die for. We mustn't let them down. Let's make our democracy stronger. I want to thank you, Mr. Wells, for being with us today. Thank you, Commodore Carey, for inviting me. And now your attention, please, ladies and gentlemen, for an interesting announcement. Just half a minute to give you some advance information about the new Lear Home Radios and one of the exclusive features you'll find in them. It is an entirely unique way of tuning your set from your easy chair. Not just a few pre-selected stations, but any program you want anywhere on your dial. At your fingertips is a pair of tiny knobs. One for tuning, one for volume. Across the room is the fine radio that responds to your every wish. You're going to hear a lot about this new Lear development. It's something you will want in your radio. Something you will find only in Lear radios. L-E-A-R. As the Navy Department does not endorse any product, 
Our appearance on this naval base today does not constitute an endorsement of Lear Radios. And now, a final word from Orson Welles. Well, I haven't got much time, and this is not a news program, but in spite of our prejudice against rumors, here's one that I think is worth your attention. Reliable sources, that well-known source, and these, however, are pretty reliable, inform me that Nazi scientists are working on the atom bomb in Franco, Spain. Well, that's all for now. Please let me come to call again, and thanks for this time. Until next Sunday, same time, same station. My sponsors, the makers of Lear Radios, and I remain, as always, obediently yours. This is the American Broadcasting Company. 10.30 KECA Los Angeles, transcribed. Gifts for Christmas? The May Company, of course. <laughs> 